African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. What we see here is a clear violation of one, the right to privacy of Tiwonge and uh, Stephen. The position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting. Well, thank you for joining us right here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is African Dialogue with me, Benjamin Mushatam, once again, where we zoom into the big subject matters of the continent of Africa. Well, today we're going to be looking at the death of the leader of the Polisario Front, Mohammed Abdulaziz, and look at the political situation in Western Sahara. But let's quickly move on and get our news from En Musa. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. In the headlines, Human Rights Watch links peacekeepers to murders in the Central African Republic. The UN and three global groups highlight election tensions in Congo and a new rebel group vows to attack strategic targets across Nigeria.
A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussa. Soldiers from the Republic of Congo have killed at least 18 people, including women and children, between December 2013 and June last year while serving as peacekeepers in the Central African Republic, according to a new report by Human Rights Watch. Aid workers have unearthed the remains of 12 people who they say were murdered in the Central African Republic in 2014. The exhumation of the bodies refutes the peacekeepers' previous claim that the victims had escaped. Human Rights Watch also documented the death by torture of two anti-Balaka leaders in December 2013, the public execution of two suspected anti-Balaka in February 2014, and the beating to death of two civilians in June last year by Congolese peacekeepers. The UN and key organizations in Europe, Africa and French-speaking world have issued a rare joint statement highlighting growing concern at the rising political tensions in Congo ahead of the elections. The UN, European Union, African Union and International Organization of La Francophonie underlined the crucial importance of holding a successful political dialogue with all Congolese parties that leads to a consensus on holding free, transparent and credible elections. President Joseph Kabila has yet to comment publicly on his political future. Congo's top opposition presidential candidate Moise Katumbi flew to South Africa for medical treatment in May after authorities issued a warrant for his arrest. A new rebel group has vowed to attack strategic targets across Nigeria despite calls for a united front from other militants who have claimed recent strikes on oil facilities. The group calling itself the Joint Niger Delta Liberation Force says it would hit all those infrastructures that were built with oil and gas monies from Nigeria. The list of targets included the presidential villa, government ministries, parliament, the state-run oil firm and the central bank in Abuja, plus the offices of oil majors and the military. At least 11 people have been killed by a blast which targeted a police bus in central Istanbul, Turkey. Seven police officers, officers are among the dead. 36 people were also wounded in the attack and three of them were in a critical condition. Turkey has suffered a spate of bombings this year, including two suicide attacks in tourist areas of Istanbul blamed on Islamic State and the car bombings in the capital Ankara, which were claimed by a Kurdish militant group. And finally, Namibia's Minister of Environment and Tourism, Pohamba Shavinta, has reacted on global criticism about his ministry's plans to ask trophy hunters for bids on the killing of black rhino in the country for conservation purposes. He says the targeted rhino are too old to be used for future breeding purposes. We have to wait until submissions made to the final because the people give different prices because you bid for one only and you have to give your price as to how much you would love to pay for one trophy hunting. Recapping the top stories, Human Rights Watch links peacekeepers to the murders in Central African Republic. The UN and three global groups highlight election tensions in Congo. And a new rebel group vows to attack strategic targets across Nigeria.
Yes, you are listening to Channel Africa. Thank you to Anne Musad for that news update. Well, today we're looking at the consequences of the death of the leader of the Polisario Front. That's Mohammed Abdelaziz. That's the leader of the Polisario Front, Mohammed Abdelaziz. Well, Mohammed Abdelaziz, the leader of the Western Sahara Independent Movement, Polisario Front, died of lung cancer last week, Tuesday, and was buried on Saturday in the disputed territory. The 68-year-old Abdelaziz spoke spent more than 40 years fighting for the independence for the territory and was buried in part of the Western Sahara, not controlled by Morocco. Local Sahrawi people are campaigning for the right to self-determination, but Morocco considers the territory to be part of the kingdom and insists its sovereignty cannot be challenged. But before we start with the conversation with our guests today, let's find out more about who this man was and get a profile of Western Sahara and also find out a little bit of a backdrop of Mohammed Abdelaziz. This is the voice of my colleague Anne Musa. Mr. Abdelaziz was born in 1948 in Smara, which is now in Moroccan-controlled Western Sahara, and led the Palazario Front, which he helped found since 1976. The issue of Western Sahara has prompted new friction between two North African neighbors, Morocco and Algeria. Algeria supports the Palazario Front and, like numerous other African countries, recognizes the Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic it defends. The Moroccan government has proposed wide-ranging autonomy for the region, but the Palazario Front insists on self-determination through a referendum for the local population as called for in UN resolutions. Morocco expelled most UN civilian staff last month after the UN chief used the word occupation to refer to the situation following a visit to a camp for Western Sahara refugees in southern Algeria. In April, a top member of the Palazario Front, Bachar Mustafa Sayed, warned that war is possible over the disputed territory if the UN Security Council fails to set a timetable for a vote on self-determination. Mr. Abdulaziz warned in a letter to UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon that Morocco will have a green light to military aggression unless the Security Council imposes real and direct pressure on Morocco to restore the UN mission's work. He warned that the Sahrawi people in Western Sahara will defend their rights in the face of aggression by all legitimate means, including armed struggle. The Palazario had mounted a desert war against Morocco after the territory was annexed. Sadly, Mohamed Abdelaziz died on Tuesday, the 1st of June 2016, after a long illness. He was in his late 60s. Amid the announcement of his passing, the Palazario Front ordered a 40-day mourning period, after which it said a new Secretary-General will be chosen. Furthermore, Algerian President Abdelaziz Bouteflika also declared a week of mourning for the Palazario leader, whose group is based in Tunduf in southern Algeria. The death of Mr. Abdelaziz, leader on the Palazario front for four decades, comes at a time of growing tensions over the fate of the Western Sahara. The Palazario front has fought for four decades for independence for the vast mineral-rich territory on Africa's Atlantic coast, which was annexed by Morocco after Spain withdrew in 1975. Morocco now considers the territory as its southern province 
and has pumped funds into the area's development over the years. Morocco is also becoming increasingly assertive on the topic with the United Nations, which has worked for years to help settle the issue of Western Sahara's status. Well, that was looking at the life of uh, the now later uh, Mohammed Abdelaziz, the leader of the Western Sahara Independence Movement, the Polisario Front. And today we're going to look at the consequences of the death of uh, uh, Mohammed Abdelaziz, who died in his late uh, 60s. Joining us on the line to look at this uh, leader is uh, J.J. Connish, who is a specialist in African affairs and uh, also a radio journalist. He's also been a lecturer as well. We also have uh, on the line Ibrahim Dean, who's a researcher at the Afro Middle East Center based here in Johannesburg, South Africa. JJ Connish, thank you for giving us your time. I'm very delighted to do so. Now, JJ Connish, as we look at this moment of Mohammed Abdelaziz, what can we say about the man now looking back at his life? Well, you know, um, he uh, was a very quiet and, and, and modest man. He left Smara, his hometown in the Western Sahara uh, in, the, in the late 60s to go and fight the Spanish colonialists. And of course, uh, we all know that what happened was when the king of the, the fascist the dictator died in Spain and they gave up that colony, uh, Morocco then moved in in the year of 1975 with the so-called Green March occupied half of it. Mauritania occupied the other half. And uh, he was involved with Mohamed Abdelaziz in actually fighting to free that half from Mauritania. Mm. Mauritania gave up uh, their, their occupation and uh, the Moroccans moved in on that. And he, he then became, uh, the, I think, the fourth leader of Polisario and, uh, and ruled them, so to speak, from uh, Tindouf. He, he never went back home. Mm. And also, in terms of uh, his political kind of I- identity, what makes him stand uh, apart uh, looking at this region itself? Well, you know, he was obviously a nationalist, and he was fighting desperately for the uh, self-determination of his people. Now, much of this happened during the Cold War, mm-hmm. when Polisario was painted as a uh, sort of Soviet uh, ally. The fact is, the Cubans did help uh, Western Sahara enor- enormously in training uh, doctors and, and uh, others, as they do in South Africa. And the uh, young Sahrawi who trained in Cuba went home to the refugee camps in the Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic in exile and, and worked there. So uh, that was what led many of the Western powers to eschew uh, Polisario. Mm. So he had an uphill battle. Much of his time of late, since the end of the Cold War, has been spent uh, working on, the say, the United States lobby. They have lobbied assiduously in getting United States uh, congressmen to come and see what is happening, to understand the situation, as most Africans do, that this is Africa's last colonial problem, that Morocco is an illegal occupation of that territory, and uh, he never wasted an opportunity. He, was, uh, he traveled enormously uh, to make this point at um, solidarity meetings uh, and wherever he could, to make the point that Sahara needed to... The Sahari themselves needed to determine their own future and that Morocco's illegal occupation had to end. Hmm. Well, we're going to come back to that. And I'm not quite sure. Maybe, JJ, you've met the guy. I'm not quite sure. Have you met the man, JJ Connish? 
I've certainly met him several times. Tell us a little bit about his personality and what your observations were when you actually met him. I know you're a journalist who travels all around around the continent. I'd like to know your personal experience of the man. Well, he speaks a very little English, but used to try with me to speak a bit. Hmm. So mostly when we did formal interviews, it was he spoke in Arabic and uh, we, he, uh, we, we needed an interpreter. So with that uh, distance between us at every uh, occasion, you don't really get the kind of personal bonhomie. Mm, mm, uh, mm. But uh, but we, there was an affection between us. You could see it the way he greeted me. The Sahawi have a very, very uh, delicate uh, sensibility. They are a very proud people. And, and they believe in, in greeting. You cannot believe two Sahari greeting one another. It takes <laughs> about three minutes to do it. And so, you know, to greet the president when you say, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 it's quite amazing what, what uh, you, you know, Sabah Khir, Sabah Nur, Sabah, you know, and then you talk about, you, 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 you greet one another and shake hands uh, fiercely. And uh, he, I, I'd, I'd like to say that he showed humor at times, mm. but the man's situation was one where, you know, he took an opportunity. He was a journalist. He had to make a point, and uh, he would make it uh, in, 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 a, in a very exact way. Mm. He spoke very precisely, and uh, he, he was certainly on top of his, his game. He knew his facts. He couldn't be fooled. And the Moroccans, of course, use duplicity mm. very largely in diplomacy. Sure. So they would make statements, mm. uh, and, and he would spend a lot of the time recanting those. Mm, mm. Well, I'm going to take one more break, and uh, we'll come back to the man. And uh, we still have Ibrahim Dean, who is the researcher at the Afro Middle East Center based in Johannesburg. But we started the conversation with J.J. Cornish, who is a senior journalist in African Affairs in South Africa. He travels all around the, the globe and also around the continent, especially, and specializes in African news. So we'll come to Ibrahim Dean and just unpack, especially the issue of annexation. That is the big issue here. What are the consequences? of the death of Mohammed Abdelaziz. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Well, you are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Benjamin Mushatama. Remember, if you're listening to us on our shortwave service, we're on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31-meter band to southern Africa. On DSTV, it's changed from 902. Now we're on 802 on the audio bouquet, and we're also online on www.channelafrica.co.za. Today, we're speaking about the consequences of the death of uh, the leader of the Polisario Front, Mohammed 
Abdelaziz. We started the conversation with JJ Cornish, who is a senior journalist on African affairs and also a radio journalist. We've got also on the line Ibrahim Dean, researcher at the Afro Middle East Center based in Johannesburg. And also joining us, we've got Dr. Olivia Luabu Kuna, who is a research specialist at the Institute of South Africa. And that's the research unit that's part of the Human Sciences of Research Council. Let me bring you in, Ibrahim. Thank you for joining us once again on our program, Ibrahim. Thanks for having me, Benjamin. Now, it's interesting to see what um, uh, J.J. Cornish highlighted about this man, Mohammed uh, Abdelaziz. But now I'm sure there's a complex situation, especially for the Polisario Front, because they've had this man leading them for a very long period of time. And now there is an issue of succession. And I know that he might be selected at the Extraordinary Conference within 40 days. Do we know anything about this process of succession, um, uh, Ibrahim? I know that they've, they've, they've at the moment appointed a deputy that would, uh, you know, in, be in charge of Polisario until the Congress. Uh, but, you know, the biggest issue with succession, as you say, is Mohammed Abdelaziz had legitimacy. He was seen as a legitimate leader, you know, by most Sahrawi. And, you know, who had one, you know, been a co-founder of, the, of Polisario, but also, too, you know, was, was actively, com- you know, active in combat against one, uh, the Spanish and later the Moroccans. And, you know, it's going to be very difficult, in, especially in these uncertain times, and bearing in, uh, you know, considering the fact that, you know, Morocco has now um, sought to become more assertive in its control over uh, Sahrawi territories, basically, you know, um, just expelled you a So, you know, at the moment, Polisario itself is on the back foot. Uh, there's, there's no, uh, there hasn't been, uh, you know, the recognition of a new state since South Sudan, and especially with the conflict in South Sudan, uh, you know, mm-hmm. the national community has become very, uh, very, you know, state recognition has become extremely tenuous. Mm-hmm. And so Polisario at the moment is, you know, on the back foot. And this is probably, you know, the worst thing that could have happened to Polisario you know, at this time, uh, because he was a unifying figure, a figure with the cred- uh, you know credentials and credibility, and it's going to be very difficult, especially now, uh, you know, with the, with the fact that you know many of the Sahrawi, some are in you know refugee camps in Tendouf, others are in you know in, uh, in um, the control you know the, the Western Sahara itself. So it's, it's yeah. going to be extremely difficult to elect a leader that has that legitimacy and credibility like Mohammed uh, Abdelaziz. Jeju mm. Cornish, your thoughts about the succession moment for the Polisario Front? Well, I have to say, I don't know uh, who mm. will succeed him, uh, but it's very important that whoever it is is somebody who holds the uh, self-determination uh, of the Sahari people as dear as he did, that that battle should not uh, start to ebb. You know, just, uh, but just over a month ago, the Secretary-General of the United Nations Ban Ki-moon was in the territory and well, in Morocco and spoke, spoke about the occupation of Morocco, of the Western Sahara. Well, they were absolutely incensed at this, um, and uh, they then started throwing out some of the members of MINURSO, which is the United Nations. We refer to it as the United Nations Peacekeeping Force. Uh, they threw out civilian members of them, uh, and they even broke off ties with the European Union, only briefly realizing that they were cutting off their nose despite their faces, uh, to do this mm-hmm. by doing this because mm-hmm. of the, they had refused to recognize, 
uh, Morocco's right to mine in the Western Sahara, and they've stopped trade deals with Morocco. So the battle is starting to move one way. It's often said that, for example, if King Hassan had not died in 1999, he had agreed at the Organization of African Unity to a referendum for the Western Sahara. Well, when the, uh, the OAU, that's the predecessor to the AU, recognized the Western Sahara, the Morocco left it in high dudgeon. Just last year, when India recognized Sahara, uh, they, they, they cut off diplomatic, Morocco cut off diplomatic ties. When we, uh, at 10 years after uh, democracy, recognized the Western Sahara, the Moroccans withdrew their ambassador. So they are, they are absolutely clinging white-knuckled to this territory because of, um, for many reasons, some believe that if they let that go, then other regions of the kingdom become very tenuous. Others mm. say it's because of the phosphates. But Western Sahara has about half the phosphate uh, resources in the world. And mm. so, you know, it has, it has riches and certainly the fishing of the Western Sahara. So uh, the, the, it's absolutely important that the integrity of this territory uh, is maintained and that Morocco uh, doesn't manage or doesn't uh, get any more of a hold on it than it already has, which is, again, uh, illegal. Mm. Let me move to you, uh, Dr. Olivia Loabukuna, in terms of looking at the international law when it comes to this annexation process itself. What are the legal issues that could be raised regarding the international UN obligations regarding this issue? Well, um, the legal issues that have existed have existed since um, the 1960s when when actually resolutions were made on, on the area. But essentially, the problem has always been, first of all, Minoso, which is not necessarily a peacekeeping, a normal peacekeeping unit. It was mm-hmm. there to ensure that the referendum happened. Um, does not have the power to to interfere in the conflict. It doesn't have the power to act. And also, the, the international, um, let's say, Laguna is highly lies in the fact that um, the United Nations so far, and specifically the UN Security Council, has not really taken enforcement uh, um, solutions of uh, the conflict. They've stayed away from doing that. But that, for me, I think is tied to the fact that um, the main members of the UN Security Council also regard Morocco as an ally within that region, which is highly unstable. So um, there's this um, idea of not trying to, to shake the waters, as my, the previous presenters um, alluded to. Morocco mm. responds uh, very strongly. So... Um, the fact that the United Nations Security Council and the UN in general has not managed to, to make an enforced solution, let's say give a resolution and enforce it, um, is actually limited solutions we have. The legal solutions made, um, there have been United Nations resolution alluding to the fact that uh, Western Sahara should be allowed to and have allowed to exercise its rights self-determination of the territory. You have had an International Court of Justice um, advisory opinion on Western Sahara, which essentially um, stated that Western Sahara had no legal ties to Morocco and stated that when Morocco invaded Western Sahara after um, um, Spain pulled out, it did not do so as an, as an administrating, administrative force, like the way Spain had it, did it so as an occupying force. And I did not do so with the, um, let's say, um, permission from the Sahrawi people mm. themselves. Hence, it was actually an occupation and it was illegal. There has been legal resolutions given, but since there isn't an enforcement um, 
step being taken, Morocco continues to occupy the territory. So there are limitations to international law, especially the enforceability of international decisions, and, mm. and that's where um, Western Sahara finds itself. Mm. Should these limitations that Dr. Olivia Loabuka highlights, uh, Ibrahim, be challenged? I mean, I think they should be challenged. Whether they will be challenged is a different story because, as as Dr. said, Morocco is an unstable region, uh, especially, you know, after the fall of Gaddafi, we're seeing the spread of uh, Al-Qaeda and Islamic Maghrib. Uh, you know, we've seen the Arab Spring. And so the international community sees Morocco as one of these bulwarks, as, you know, the one force of stability or form of stability in this region. Uh, and, and, and that's why, you know, basically there's, there's been no enforcement because the UN Security Council, specifically your US and France, have actually been lobbying for Moroccan annexation of Western Sahara. So we have the UN Security Council members themselves, you know, having a different view from these resolutions. And, 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 and this is going to be, you know, it's, that's going to be very difficult, especially now that Algeria itself is in its own, has its own issues. Uh, you know, um, Abdel Bouteflika, for example, is, uh, is, you know, nearing his end mm. and there's a succession battle in, in Algeria. Mm. Um, the oil price has severely weakened the Algerian support for Polisario. You know, the high, rise of ISIS has made Morocco even more important. And so Morocco actually increasingly now actually sees itself as now being able to be more assertive and, and, and you know, assert its annexation. And that's why, one, it is, uh, you know, announced recently that it will be upgrading diplomatic ties with South Africa. It's appointed an ambassador to South Africa, even though South Africa has not necessarily de-recognized, uh, you know, the Sahrawi Arab Republic. It's also, uh, you know, felt that it now has the power to actually expel Manoso forces and civilian members of Manoso from, uh, you know, Sahrawi territory, and whereas previously it still had felt a bit constrained, and now mm. it's you know, much more assertive, and so it's very unlikely that, uh, that, that these decisions will be challenged, especially in a context where international law evolves very slowly. Also, there's that dynamic, and we'll talk about it after this break, of actually Morocco pulling out of the African Union after there was a question of Western Sahara. What does that actually mean for Morocco itself? Maybe I'll uh, pick your brain there, J.J. Cornish, after we come back from this break. Hey, what are your thoughts about the consequences of the death of the uh, Polisario front leader, Mohamed Abdelaziz? Give us your thoughts. Remember, you can email us at info at channelafrica.org. We want to hear your views or you can tweet us at African Dialogue. That's at African Dialogue or at Channel Africa One. We want to hear your views. It's almost 11.30 Central African time. Remember, you are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Benjamin Mushatama. You'll be with me for the next 30 minutes. We're going to continue this conversation uh, with our guests on the line. We've got JJ Cornish, who is a senior reporter in African affairs and radio journalist. Ibrahim Dean also joins us on the line, researcher at the Afro Middle East Center. And we've got Dr. Olivia Luabukuna, who is the research specialist at the Institute of South Africa. Let's take a quick break and we'll be back with our experts. I am an African. I owe my being to the hills and the valleys, the mountains and the glades, the rivers, the deserts, the trees, the flowers, the seas, and the ever-changing seasons that define the face of our native land. My body has frozen in our frosts and in our latter-day snows. It has thawed in the warmth of our sunshine and melted in the heat of the midday sun. 
crack and the rumble of the summer thunders, lashed by startling lightning, have been a cause both of trembling and of hope. The fragrances of nature have been as pleasant to us as the sight of the wild blooms of the citizens of the felt. The dramatic shapes of the dragon's back, the soil-colored waters of the Likwa, Igreli, Lotugel, and the sands of the Khalahati have all been panels of the set on the natural stage on which we act out the foolish deeds of the theater of the day. I am the grandchild of the warrior men and women that incense the Kukuni land. Patriots at Tetrayon and Pepu took to battle. The soldiers Mushweshwe and Gungunyane taught never to dishonor the cause of freedom. Being part of all of these people, and in the knowledge that none dares contest that assertion, I shall claim that I'm an African. Yes, you are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. And yeah, that is our mandate. We are proud of being part of the African narrative. And that's why we're here. Remember, you're listening to us on DSTV on Channel 802 and on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa. Online, we're on www.channelafrica.co.za. Today, we're looking at the consequences of the death of the leader of the Polisario Front, but also looking at the political situation situation in western sahara and uh, remember that uh, we've got jj cornish on the line he's uh, uh, an african affairs senior reporter and we've got ibrahim dean who's a researcher at the afro middle east center and dr olivia loabukuna is a research specialist at the institute of south africa Uh, jj let me come to you in terms of this part of our conversation to look at this interesting fact that morocco is not part of the african union after pulling out of the organization because of the question of the Western Sahara. Tell us, what does this mean, especially for Morocco itself, pulling out from the African Union? Well, Morocco left the organization of African unity, that's the okay. predecessor, okay. in 1984, when sure. it recognized the Western Sahara and uh, in, in high dudgeon, and so has remained not a part of Africa, as it were. When the, uh, the African Union was formed in the 90s, it didn't have any part of that either. It chose to stay away because they recognized the Western Sahara. Just as I say, when South Africa recognized uh, 10 years after democracy, uh, they pulled their ambassador out here. The, the fact is, uh, what's, uh, I was at the United Nations when Morocco invaded the Western Sahara. And I remember at the time the three issues, East Timor, Namibia, which was what I was covering, and... Uh, the Western Sahara. And with all my accumulative wisdom at the, of a young man at the time, I told my colleagues that the, Sahara, the, the Polisario Front were doughty fighters and they would get independence first. Mm. And that uh, the, I wasn't sure about the East Timorese, but the, the uh, words in South Africa were so strong and so determined that Namibia would be way, way behind. And unfortunately, it would take years. Well, of course, I was 100% wrong. Uh, it went exactly the other way around. Mm-hmm. And what is interesting today is to see how Morocco behaves exactly like the apartheid regime. It shoots itself in the foot at every turn, desperate to try and get some credibility, some uh, legitimacy for what it is doing, and fails every time. But because of, in those days, the, uh, the Cold War for South Africa, in these days, the fight against uh, Islamist terror for Morocco... Western powers back up Morocco. 
France particularly. So the French, the British, the uh, Americans cast triple vetoes to protect South Africa's occupation of Namibia. They're very mm. embarrassed about it mm. here today. Now France protects Morocco because it believes, as uh, the previous speaker said, that it's a bastion against Islamist uh, uh, terror coming, moving in. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the fact is, history is on the wrong side of it. This is one, the last colonial issue in Africa, and Africans, all of them, South Africa very much at the forefront of that, needs to have settlement on that and is pushing for it. Mm. Ibrahim, your thoughts there on, you know, this these declarations, some countries declaring the Western Sahara and putting it on the agenda and others saying, hey, we support Morocco. There seems to be a lot of contestation around that, as was highlighted there by J.J. Cornish. I mean, I think, you know, international community, as uh, J.J. says, you know, the, the big powers, major powers in the international com- community, the U.S. front specifically, uh, you know, support uh, Morocco specifically because of this, uh, you know, this uh, the growth of uh, of militancy specifically uh, from you know your groups like Al Qaeda and uh, Islamic Maghreb. Uh, I mean, within Africa, the story is different, but also uh, you know not as unified as many would like it to be. So you know, there were there there were a lot more states that recognized uh, the Sahrawi uh, uh, Republic previously. It's now you know, moved down to roughly less than 30, if I'm not mistaken, at last count, which means, you know, in the continent, especially within, you know, there's a divide between Anglophone and Francophone, and many Francophone countries, because of cultural, religious, and economic ties with Morocco, uh, actually don't recognize or have frozen recognition of Western Sahara that, uh, you know, uh, barring Kenya and now South Africa, Morocco doesn't really maintain diplomatic ties uh, or at least ambassadorial level diplomatic ties with uh, with, with countries recognizing Western Sahara. But, I mean, I think from a specific Moroccan perspective, you know, the fact that they're not seen as part of Africa Yes, it, it, it affects them diplomatically, and that's why we've seen, uh, especially now in the past year, uh, the king take many frequent visits to West African countries, specifically or Cote d'Ivoire, Gabon, uh, you know, those areas. Uh, but from a trade perspective, Morocco's main trade lies with the EU and the U.S., and Moroccan investment, you know, much of it goes to Francophone Africa, and, and, and much of it would also go to North, uh, Northern Africa. So it doesn't really feel much, you know, economic uh, and political impact, you know, of its, of its occupation or its control of Western Sahara. And, you know, this would need to change, you know, for there to be a situation uh, that forces Morocco to change. And right now it's looking like the situation is changing the other way, you know, where Polisario's main backers, uh, Algeria is, uh, is is suffering because of the oil mm-hmm. crisis, because mm-hmm. of the succession. South Africa, for example, is likely to recommend diplomatic ties, you know, with with Morocco. Especially, we've already heard that the ambas- ambassador is, uh, you know, has been appointed from the kingdom, likely uh, already been approved by Pretoria. And and so we're seeing, you know, a move away from Sahrawi independence towards an autonomy plan. And, and this is the problem, especially, uh, you know, for uh, your Polisario, who right now, you know, need much more support and, you know, are finding it very difficult to bring the Sahrawi issue back onto the, onto the table.
Mm. It seems like the issue of annexation becomes now a political, kind of politicized issue. Dr. Levua Loabukuna, your thoughts around this area, especially when it becomes kind of, you see also interests of various countries coming into play. That's a very interesting dynamic. Okay, first of all, as the previous presenter pointed out, um, the fact that there isn't so much political pressure over Morocco from the African continent, I mean, the last time the African continent attempted to do something about it was when they, together the United Nations in 1991, managed to negotiate for a settlement plan. And as we know, that settlement plan of 1991 actually failed specifically because it suggested a referendum for independence as opposed to the autonomy plan that Morocco had. And so far, the... The pulling out of Morocco out of the African Union, once again, as reiterated by the previous presenters, does not really affect Morocco that much. I mean, its diplomatic ties to Africa um, are just simply that diplomatic ties, but in terms of economic relations, it doesn't really need to. It has ties to the EU, to U.S., and to a large extent to the GCC states and the Gulf. So to that extent, there isn't that pressure, pressure both economic and diplomatic. And as the previous presenters alluded once again, um, there are a couple of African states that are beginning to move towards the other way, mostly for economic purposes, because Morocco also has, to an extent, an economic muscle in that area of the world. But at the same time, the Moroccans, even when you were there, I was there a month ago, they have a strong um, cultural tie both to the Arabic world and Europe, especially France. So um, they don't really consider themselves as Africans. So negotiating as an African continent mm. is going to be hard unless something else comes along the way. But also, um, in terms of political pressures we've been discussing, in cases of, uh, let's say, Southwest Africa, which is Namibia now, um, there was pressure from the international community, which Morocco is not necessarily feeling. There have been statements, and yes, there have been statements that we are not supporting what Morocco is done is doing, but that is not necessarily political pressure. So Morocco is actually getting away with what they've been doing. It's similar to what is going on in Israeli occupation of uh, the Palestinian regions. There isn't so much pressure because it looks like an ally, ally, but it's an ally that can economically take care of itself to an extent. So it is not pressurized. And on top of that, the new economic um, dynamic that has come up of resources in in, in Western Sahara is also giving Morocco momentum. So the fact that the head of Polisario has passed away, um, southern Algeria and the Tinduf um, refugee camps, there's a lot of instability. It's becoming, becoming an economic burden. And uh, Polisario doesn't seem to have strong leadership right now. And the fact that there is a lot for Morocco to gain from occupying mm. Western Sahara actually pushes Morocco to tighten its hold on Western Sahara. And to be honest, I have not seen a legal solution to Western Sahara, especially because all the legal approaches seem to have failed because of lack of enforcement. A political solution would have been better, but as we are um, reiterating, there isn't enough strong political muscle to pressurize Morocco at this point. So does that mean, JJ, that this is the end for the, on end of the road for the Polisario Front? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Uh, 62 countries recognize the Polisario Front. Now, th- this talk uh, that both my, my predecessors have been going on is, is bandied about in, in Rabat a great deal of the time. It's very much the Moroccan line that history is against a few Sahrawi. The fact is, if you read uh, South Africa statements, you read South, uh, statements by the other African power, Nigeria, uh, they are militantly 
supportive of the uh, Sahrawi right to self-determination. If Morocco is about to bring in another uh, ambassador, well, that may be the case. Uh, I certainly uh, haven't heard that, and I'm in very much in touch with the Moroccans. The fact is uh, they are behaving in exactly the same way as the apartheid regime behaved. They, 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 they obfuscate uh, and, and uh, they uh, re- rely basically on, on untruths to sustain their argument. The, the fact that Ban Ki-moon, the Secretary General of the United Nations, has recognized the occupation of the Western Sahara is in itself interesting, and this is of late, that the European Union has cut, uh, broken a trade deal with Morocco, uh, angering it enormously in doing it. Another point is the fact that things are moving, uh, and, and perhaps more in a Sahrawi way. The fact is that, that whoever leads, the, and we were talking about, the follow-up to uh, Mohammed Abdelaziz, whoever leads the Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic uh, next is going to have to take up the cudgels with the same energy that he did and, and use the films we have. The fact that he has recognized uh, the, the, the Western Sahara, well, that's very interesting because India was, for example, uh, a, a, an absolutely at the forefront of the fight against apartheid at the United Nations. Yes, at the moment, the Western powers continue to protect uh, the, the, uh, Morocco. But history is against Morocco, just as it was against the apartheid regime. They protected the apartheid regime in their time. But when it became clear that the game was over, they turned. And, and that same is going to happen with Morocco and the Western Sahara. I'm convinced of that. Mm. Well, that's how we're going to wrap it up. Thank you to J.J. Cornish, who is a senior uh, reporter on African affairs and journalist in uh, the radio industry. And J.J. Cornish was actually my lecturer some years ago. So it's actually a little bit intimidating not to call him Mr. Cornish. So uh, it has been a pleasure to speak to you, J.J. Cornish. Thank you as well to Ibrahim Dean, who is a researcher at the Afro Middle East Center based in Johannesburg. And last but not least, thank you as well, Dr. Olivia Lwabukuna, who is a research specialist at the Institute of South Africa. Thank you all for giving us your time. Great pleasure. Thank you. Well, that's how we wrap it up with our guests. It's been a great conversation. Hey, do you agree with the sentiments that were made in this conversation? Give us your thoughts. Remember, you can email us at info at channelafrica.org. And we want to hear your voice. You can also tweet us or join our African Dialogue Twitter handle at African Dialogue. Simply title that at African Dialogue. And uh, thank you to those who are becoming more and more part of that community. Hey, we're going to take a quick break. It's 11.45 for Central uh, African Time. That's Central Central African time. Let's take a quick break and then we'll be back with our business news. Hi, this is Lira, South African Afro soul singer and songwriter. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, celebrating 20 years of South African freedom and democracy. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Well, Wusani uh, Matsebula just walked in with his swagger, looking as uh, gentlemanly as usual. He's going to give us our business news.
Thanks, Benjamin. Equatorial Guinea has announced a new discovery of gas and the official opening of bidding for mining licenses for about 47 blocks or mining areas. The announcement was made by the Minister of Mines, Industry and Energy in Equatorial Guinea, Gabriel Mbaga Obiang Lima, on the sidelines of the Africa Oil and Power Gathering held in Cape Town, South Africa. The minister says although it's still too early to talk about the plans, the quantity of gas discovered is much higher than the previous discoveries. He has also invited companies to bid for mining licenses before the closing date of November this year. November 30 is the deadline. So once we have received all those interests, we will open the different packages and then it should not take us too long. We are discussing probably two weeks, three weeks and then we can announce and we need to have consultations because sometimes of those bids we need some clarification. And apologies for the bad sound there. Moving on ahead, ratings agency Fitch is likely to affirm South Africa's investment-grade credit ratings this week, but may lower its outlook to negative. South Africa has dodged downgrades from S&P Global Ratings and Moody's. Fitch, which rates South Africa one step above speculative grade with a stable outlook, has not said when it will publish its new review. And more than 30,000 people have lost their jobs in Kenya's troubled tourism sector in the last five years following heightened insecurity, mainly at the coast. Tourism Cabinet Secretary Najib Balala took stock of the job losses in a press conference, saying that terror threats had crippled one of Kenya's most imported pillars. Most of the job losses have been reported in hotels. The Uganda Free Zones Authority will uh, oversee the establishment of the infrastructure for handling of beef processing and value addition. Ugandan cattle farmers will reap in terms of value addition as a result of the establishment of the Free Zone Industrial Park at Kaweweta, Nakasake District. Minister of Finance and Economic Planning, Matia Kasayaji, has handed over a land certificate for 18 square miles to ASB Group of Companies. And now for your financial indicators, this time around the U.S. dollar waking up to 15.02 South African rands at 10.82 Botswana Pula and 10.39 against the Zambian Kwacha. Also trading at 0.69 to the British pound and 0.88 against the euro. Moving on now to the commodities market, we start with gold, which is at $1,242. And platinum, conventionally, going down $988 per fine ounce. Brent crude oil reaching the psychological mark of 50 US dollars, 15 cents per barrel. And that's how it's imported. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
Good day, sports fans. I am Musiwudi Makura with the latest sports news at the Sawam. Starting off with rugby news, there are no less than 10 uncapped Springboks in the current squad that will do battle against Ireland over the next three weeks. Just um, hope uh, men, just hope many of those will see action in Cape Town this Saturday remains to be seen. But such a number, or rather such a high number of potential debutants is as good an indication as any that this is the new dawn of South African rugby. Well, coach Alistair Kotsia has never been afraid to give big opportunities to youngsters. He was known for that during his time at the Stormers, and he has now thrown a new few faces onto the higher stage a little earlier and then perhaps even they would have expected. It can be a daunting experience for a young player, but Captain Adrian Strauss has encouraged the newbies to embrace the moment. We spoke about it last week as well. It's great for me to have you know, a lot of leaders around me, really helping me. And um, we had a couple of meetings last week and, and, and yesterday as well. You know, it's good to have Dwayne back. It's good to have Flo back. Um, and it's just good to see them as well. We're good mates. So it's good to see them. It's great to have that leadership, um, that extra leadership within the group as well. And like I said, we had good meetings last night. And, you know, already they've started contributing and, and really helping me. It's, it's great to have them back, yes. On to football news, South Africa is in camp ahead of their second leg of the under-20 African Nations Cup qualifier against the Young Warriors of Namibia, said for Saturday. The first leg that was played in Windhoek ended in a goalless draw. Coach Tabosinong has had to adjust his program a bit as Amajita began their training session on Saturday. Four players from the Bedvedsvitz Academy, Sanele Shabalala, Sibonga Kongembata, as well as Reeve Fosler, joined the rest of the team late on Saturday after the Academy League match. Liam Jordan, as well as Nelson Manulega, only joined the squad on Sunday morning following personal commitments. The National Olympics Committee of Kenya has given out an assurance that the National Olympic Games will be, or other game, game trials, will be held in Alderit, despite recent rumors that the organizing committee is considering moving the event to Nairobi owing to a lack of readiness. Channel Africa's Francis Mutegi has more on the story. U.S. Ngishu Council said a lot needs to be done to make the facilities in Wasengishu, Nandi, and El Geromaraquet counties that are to co-host the events ready in time to host the Team Kenya Residential Training Camp next month. Uh, we can do everything possible. I'm giving you assurance that the county of Ausengishu, the county of Elkeo uh, Marakwet, which some of the athletes are going to train there, the county of Nandi, which we are going to have a rugby team, men and women, and some of the marathon runners are going to be there. So we are all prepared to see these facilities is utilized by our athletes. And finally, Serena Williams may have been second best at the French Open this past weekend, but the American has moved ahead of fellow tennis player Maria Sharapova to the top of the women's earnings list in sport, according to Forbes magazine. Williams ended the Russians' um, 11-year reign as the world number one woman money earner in sports by hauling in $28.9 million in combined prize money and all-field earnings over the past 12 months. Sharapova, who lost some sponsorship deals after announcing 
announcing that she had tested positive to the recently banned substance melodonium at the Australian Open in January and has provisionally suspended holds second spot at 21.9 million US dollars. American mixed art, uh, martial arts standout Rhonda Rousley um, shot out to third position on the list with 14 million US dollars ahead of compatriot and NASCAR driver Danica Patrick, who earned 13.9 million US dollars. The Zaya Sports News at the Sour Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Well, that's how we wrap up our program today. Thank you for joining us here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, especially our program, African Dialogue. Hey, we want to hear from you, so do send us your emails at info at channelafrica.org. What do you enjoy about the program? What do you want to hear discussed? We want to hear from you. Remember, you can also join us on Twitter at African Dialogue. That's our handle, at African Dialogue. Well, tomorrow we'll be looking at the successes when it comes to dealing with the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. So tomorrow we'll be dealing with that very important story that we've been following since the outbreak but we see there has been containment and elimination of Ebola what is this successful story and that's what we'll be highlighting tomorrow with our guests but until tomorrow from me Benjamin Moshatama God bless